The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 28 today. For those of you who have your Bibles, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 28. Uh, one of the reasons we're doing this service today uh, is our theme, our emphasis for the year uh, 2018 has been around this idea of outreach, evangelism, and missions. Uh, we don't want to be a church that simply is like this, you know, social club where we gather together and sing our favorite songs and have all of our friends around and then aren't being mobilized to really be the church outside these walls. And so over these last several months, we've just been talking about how do we as a church family get outside of our walls and really become the hands and feet of Christ, not just across the street, not just in our neighborhoods, but literally around the globe. And and, and so this is a part of that emphasis. Uh, to those of you who faithfully give to this ministry, uh, we have dozens of min uh, missionaries uh, that we support on a monthly basis. And these missionaries are all over the world. They're doing everything from starting churches, uh, as we saw a moment ago, getting schools up and running, helping supporting locals. Some of our missionaries have orphanages. Uh, they have colleges. Uh, many are doing works in the medical uh, fields as well as just providing basic humanitarian needs. And so in your giving, you have a part of all that's taking place, not just here in Fresno, uh, but literally around the world. And, and I'm just so thankful to each and every one of you who have made this a, a normal part of your financial giving. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's because of your generosity uh, that we can support uh, folks like the Blues and, and many, many others uh, to further the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, not just here, not just in Northwest Fresno, uh, but literally in countries that otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity opportunity to hear uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I'm excited about that and I'm thankful uh, for your generosity in that way. Well, as we said a moment ago, the Baloos are with us here today. They are our missionaries to Thailand, and they were here about six years ago, and we had the opportunity of uh, bringing them on board and getting behind them, supporting them on a monthly basis financially. Uh, one, so they could feed their family while they're serving the Lord, but also so they could further the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, in those neighborhoods, in those places around the world that we don't uh, have the opportunity to get to. Uh, the Baloos uh, have three children, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, uh, Justin, Brody, and Ari. I'm sure uh, Jay will tell us a little bit more about them in a moment. Uh, Blue's been married, I believe, about eight years or so now, and to think that they spent uh, six of those years on the mission field. I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about uprooting your family right now. Traveling halfway around the world, you don't know anybody, you don't have any family there, the luxuries that we just so take for granted in America are no longer available to you. And you're doing it really for one reason. That's the glory of Christ, to, to propagate his name among the nations. I just want you to let that sink in. So when Jay gets up here and speaks in a moment, he, he's not just speaking from a place of like, well, this is what I'm supposed to talk about. No, this is something that he is living. Uh, this is something that is a part of of what God's doing in his life. And there's nothing he's gonna say today that he's not actively uh, involved in and sacrificing deeply to do. And so I hope you'll lift up this family in prayer and uh, that we're praying that the Lord will just continue, will continue to use them in the years ahead, but that he'll use us to support them 
uh, to encourage them and to pray for them. So can we do that right now? Uh, we're going to take some time to pray for this family. As we do, I'm going to ask Jay to come, and then he's going to open up the Word of God to us. I hope you'll open up your ears, open up your Bibles. Most importantly, open up your hearts uh, to what God wants to say to you here even this morning. I've already had the opportunity of being in the service at 9.30. It's a good one, and so I'm sh I know that you're going to want to just really zone in because I think it's going to be a help and a blessing. Let's pray for this family and ask that God will bless this service. Wow, it's such a privilege to be here with you today. It's encouraging for us to come after six years and see your faith moving forward. We came and we visited this building before anything had been renovated and constructed in here. It's really amazing uh, to come back and to see your faith and your faithfulness here. And one of the reasons that we do come back to the States is to, to bring an update, to bring a report to uh, churches that have been faithfully supporting us and to just simply say thank you for doing what makes it possible for us to live over there and to fulfill the mission that God has called us to. We also, we come to visit family. We have a, a wedding in the family next month, and so we come to, to see family. Right now, my two boys have been grandpa-napped, and so they are spending the day with their grandparents. It's really good for them to get to come to the States and really get acclimated over here. We, we had a gift card, and so we went to California Pizza Kitchen uh, Tuesday. We arrived in L.A. on Monday. We went on Tuesday to California Pizza Kitchen and uh, had really good waitress service. This is just after I got the f off the phone with you, Pastor Josh. And the, the, the waitress came back like the third time to kind of check on us. And Justin goes, wow, that's like the nicest security guard ever. <laughs> okay, something's a little bit different here. Um, honestly, though, we, uh, we're just so thankful to, to get a chance to, to be here. But it can be a little bit uh, confusing. You know, yesterday my wife and I pulled out on the road and we're just listening to tunes. We're enjoying the fact that we're just having only our daughter with us. So it's kind of quiet in the car and something, something about the road just wasn't right to me. As we're pulling up to a stop sign, I, I realized, you know, in Thailand we drive on the left side of the road. And uh, that's what I was doing yesterday. I was just back in that spot in my brain. So I'm thankful that it was just a clear open road. No other cars even saw us, to my knowledge, so I didn't have to be too embarrassed, and then I went and told you this morning. But anyway, it's so much fun, too, to worship in English. You know, uh, we, we worship in Thai on a regular basis, and we understand, like, 99% of what we're saying, but there's a meaning that enters our hearts uh, in such a deeper way when we worship in English. And man, it's been really encouraging to get to worship uh, here at Fresno Church today at Ambassador I recently preached uh, my, my, about my 200th sermon in Thai, and I have to say, that is still really a challenge. If you want to pray for anything for me, pray that I'll be able to articulate difficult concepts at a basic level and, and really be able to, to make that not only understood but felt in Thai. That's a, that's a pretty big challenge that uh, we're five and a half years into, and it's going to take a lot longer. We just continue to have to develop in that. That being said, it's really fun to get to preach in English this morning. I don't have to think extra hard and, and so forth. This morning, I want to talk about making disciples. And I, I want to perhaps bring a perspective that um, we're going to look at a passage that honestly you're familiar with. But hopefully we'll see it from a perspective, especially when we compare another passage in Ezekiel that will make it fresh for us today. If you are a disciple of Christ, then you'll find in these passages a calling. 
This calling, I have to tell you, it's both compelling in nature and it's impossible to accomplish both at the same time. There's, there's something in the heart of a true disciple of Christ that wants to make disciples because that's part of being a disciple. That's essential to our nature. And yet at the same time, we, re- we realize that we can't do that on our own. You'll see then that Christ wraps this calling in his assurance of his presence, his plan, and his power to carry out this impos- impossible calling. So if you'll respond in faith rather than in fear, what happens is that God himself will do the work of making disciples not only through you, but then at the same time he'll be making a disciple of you as well. Let's look at this familiar passage in Matthew chapter 28. First of all, in verse number 16, it says that the 11 disciples went away into Galilee. And today I want us to put ourselves into that picture. I want you to kind of take up this story as your own and imagine yourself meeting with Jesus to receive his very final instructions. This is something that before Christ even went to the cross, he appointed, he made an appointment with these disciples to meet with him at this place and at this time. In verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me, in heaven and in earth. Here we find a foundational promise that Christ's plan will be fully empowered. Verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Another way we would say that is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And here's this this promise of his presence as well. It says, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So before we examine the command which we find in this passage, let's just take a look at how you fit into the story. Are you a disciple? Do you know what disciple means? It's a, it's a learner, but it, it has such a deep meaning in the scriptures. There's so much, it's almost impossible to unpack the full meaning of this word. But you, as a disciple, not just mental assent, but activated as an asset of the kingdom of Christ. This changes how we live entirely, not just our eternal destiny. We're already naturalized citizens of heaven, serving terms as ambassadors here on this earth. C.S. Lewis said in The Joyful Christian, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. But Christians can fall into this trap of living for this earth while holding on to the hope of heaven. And we just expect that our language, our customs, our culture is all going to shift once we get there. But I have news for you, the kingdom is already here. The kingdom is coming in you. You're an agent of the kingdom, and this, is, this change is supposed to be happening in you and then through you. How different does your life look today because you're a disciple of Christ? How much more do you look like what Christ envisioned and how Christ is redeeming this world to be? And how much have you enacted that kingdom change on the world around you? This is what it is to be a disciple. 
Discipleship is the process by which God is changing your life right now to look more like his kingdom. And being a disciple means that through repentance and faith, not only has our, ex- our, our eternal destiny been changed, but our earthly purpose has been radically affected. We have been called to be disciples. So Jesus calls these men who have been given the message of the kingdom, as well as the power to accompany that proclamation with supernatural miracles. It's actually healings and exorcisms, and in one case of Philip, a a teleportation and some other really cool kind of scary stuff at times. So there's this incredible power accompanying this commission. And Jesus gives them, gives us, disciples, a challenge, a calling to make disciples of all nations. I want to look at a few observations about what it means to make disciples. First of all, I would say this. Making disciples means that we must directly oppose the modern tsunami of what we would call universalism. This is the idea that all paths lead to God. If we're going to make disciples, we have to come in direct conflict with this very popular idea that you can just believe whatever you want to believe and you're going to be okay as long as you really believe in it sincerely from your heart. And that's opposed to truth. It's actually, it's, it's almost unfathomable how society has come to that conclusion. It means that we have to tell those who trust in Allah or Buddha, Confucius, in idols and spirits, or even trust in themselves, that their trust is misplaced. That only by trusting in Jesus alone can we have our shame and our guilt removed and relationship with God restored. That is bold. That is not popular, let me tell you. Not just in America, but all around the world. That is not a popular message. And the challenge that we read a moment ago in Matthew 28 and verse 19 is to teach all nations. There are 16,000 diverse ethnic groups all around the world that need to hear that Jesus alone can save. So you understand we have a challenge that is way beyond our ability to do. But it starts with opposing this idea of universalism. I want us to understand, too, that making a disciple begins long before the moment of salvation, that precious time where someone turns from trusting in themselves or whatever they were trusting in. They turn by repentance and faith to Christ. It starts a long time before that. Let me ask you this. How many people are you personally, at this time, right now, think in your mind, how many pers- people are you personally mentoring into a walk with Christ? I'm not just talking about within your community of faith, edifying and building up other believers, but how many people do you have regular salty contact with? Because we're the salt and light of this world. For many people, their own hope of coming to Christ is regular contact. Their only hope, really, is regular contact with a Christian over an extended period of time. Who, who is it that comes to Christ? Think about this for a moment. Often the people that come to Christ are what people, who are people who are made thirsty by 
being down and outers. Down and outers can sometimes be easier to reach with the gospel of Christ. Or sometimes it's people who have gone through tremendous difficulty in life. We have a lady and her seven-year-old son in our church who they uh, began to work for one of our church members. She began to work for one of our church members, and she was initially very opposed to the idea of Christianity. But there was uh, a circumstance in her life that had softened her heart already to being willing to, to consider truth, and it was the fact that her husband passed away in a motorcycle accident just over a year ago. And you know, there are some people that we will encounter where the circumstances of their life soften them to hearing the gospel of Christ. But there are a lot of people out there that don't experience that kind of a physical need. There are a lot of people that don't have tremendous emotional needs. They're, they're stable, normal, fully functioning people in society. I think of a man named Mario who, who is in our church now. He works for essentially the IRS of Thailand. He's a very He's a very stable person. He has a great job. He's getting married this October. Lots of things are going right in his life. He's not the person that comes to Christ easily because he's satisfied for the most part in life, in a physical sense. But it took about a year of him coming to church and experiencing the kind of satisfaction that we only find in Christ, like Christ gave to that woman at the well. That kind of thirst-quenching satisfaction, we can only share with, Christ, share with people that, that kind of satisfaction over the period of uh, m- multiple contacts, a long time that we would spend with them. I want to point out, too, that this idea, uh, the, the, the word baptism, we sometimes can kind of gloss over that. Okay, so we're looking at the fact that before someone comes to Christ, it, it might take a long time. And one of the reasons in many places in the world is because baptism is a very high price to pay. We have uh, actually the man who opened our service a few hours ago and who kind of led in, in elements of our service in our absence came from a Muslim background. There, there's a, some Muslim people in the south of Thailand, and that's where he, uh, he hails from. And he started coming to our church uh, July, more than a year ago, and he was another one. It took months and months of study before he was willing to repent and turn to Christ in faith. But even at that point, as I, as I was teaching him, and he already really understood what baptism was, he, he said, you know, I, I really want to get baptized, but if, if we can wait a little bit and and See, I, I just don't know what to do because if I get baptized right now, my wife will leave me. Can, can you identify with that? Where getting baptized, I promise you, when I got baptized, everybody in my life was happy about it. There was not some massive price that I paid. But for many people around the world, to be baptized is to drop a nuclear bomb on all your social connections. It jeopardizes your ec- economic situation in many cases. So to be baptized, it's not just a word that we kind of pass over in the scope of this verse. It's, it's, a, it, it's a tremendous display of faith in Christ. Making disciples requires that we would spend 
time with people. That can seem like a really simple concept. But I want us to open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 3. I, I want to see a really incredible passage that describes this, <clears throat> this idea of spending time with people before we give them a message, this kind of cross-cultural evangelism. And I'll, I'll kind of give you a background to this passage. You see, the, the Holy Spirit had called Ezekiel to go to another place, to uh, another city, and he was going to go to specifically a group of people who had been hauled off into captivity. So they'd been uh, hauled away from their native land, and they had not had the word of the Lord for a long, long time. So in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 10, and I'll just point out a few things. First, in the scripture, it says, They are all my words that I shall speak unto thee, receive in thy own heart. In other words, let all my words sink deep into your own heart first. Be a disciple first. And in verse 11, and go. It's a very interesting parallel to the passage we study in Matthew 28, that it begins with that word, go. And there may be someone here today that all you need to hear in this entire sermon is just that single word, go. Because the Holy Spirit has been working, has been tugging at your heart, and may use that single word today to activate his plan in your life. Go, get, get thee to them of the captivity, and speak unto them, and tell them, thus saith the Lord. So he has got this important message for these people. And the end of verse 11 says, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. In other words, do this whether they will listen or not. It's not about, if, if we were motivated by the results that we saw, we could get discouraged pretty easily. But we're in it for the long haul because it's about the calling that we have received. It's not about the things that we see, the fruit that we see in the immediate sense. And in verse 12, the Spirit took me up, and I heard behind me a voice of great rushing, saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. Now, this is the deepest why of missions right here. There can be a lot of really important reasons to go as a missionary. Earlier, your pastor was talking about uh, the giving program here at the church and how, how you support missionaries. There can be some really important reasons, motivating factors for why you would sacrifice financially to give to missions. One of those would be the fact that Thai people need to hear the gospel. In the city where I live, if I, if I met 100 people, maybe one of them would be a Christian. Because statistically, just over 99% of our city is Buddhist. Lost without the hope of even hearing the message of Jesus Christ. So that's an important reason to give. I'll be honest with you, that's a very motivating factor. You could give too, because like Pastor said, there are people who, uh, like our family, who are living over there to give that message. And you could give for the sake of the missionary, for the sake of uh, us raising our children uh, there on the foreign field. But ultimately, those reasons and other reasons will not be sufficient counterbalance to the sacrifice that you would make. Because 
your feeling of empathy and compassion will, will ebb and flow, will wax and wane. Your feeling of love for a missionary can wax and wane over time, will disappoint you. But ultimately, there's a reason here in this verse. It's the deepest and best reason why you could do anything for missions. It's the glory of the Lord. It said, blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. Can I encourage you to give because God loves you? To give because you love God? Because that, if, if that's the motivating factor, if the glory of the Lord is the motivating factor for your giving, then no sacrifice will ever be too much. No sacrifice will ever become a heavy or burdensome thing. Verse 14, I can identify with a little bit as well. It says, I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit. What, is the, what does that mean? Another word for that would be in turmoil. There's a bit of, I, I can identify with some turmoil. You know, we just got to the States and um, been here now, I think, six days. I'm still trying to get all my time straight and everything. But it was just amazing to get to spend time in the past week with Elisa's family. And we will really enjoy, we're in the States for two months right now. We will enjoy every minute with our families. In a few days, we'll go to Michigan and we'll spend some time with my family. I have a lovely family in, uh, in the state of Michigan. And I promise you that on September 10, when I go to the Detroit airport and I fly out of Michigan, that there will be, in my spirit, in my heart, there will be some turmoil. But look at the end of that verse 14. It says, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. We do this when we make disciples, when the people of Fresno Church make disciples, we do this because there is something compelling us to share the love that we have experienced. But what I want you to really see is in verse 15. The idea that I want you to see, it says, I came to them of the captivity at Tel Abib that dwelt by the river of Kibar, and I sat where they sat. Now, that's a pretty unremarkable sentence by itself. I, I sat where they sat. It says, I remained there astonished, or another word for that might be overwhelmed. It's this idea of immersion. It means that sometimes when, when I fully understand what's being said, I don't necessarily fully understand what's going on. It's this sort of uncomfortable dynamic in life. It says, I remain there astonished among them seven days. So think about this. Ezekiel has been called of God to give an important message to the people of the captivity. And so he goes with this urgency. He's, he's transported there and he comes with this urgency and our thought would be this. He comes and he says, people listen, I have an important message from the word of God and he's going to declare his important message. The first thing, it's this urgent, incredible, because people here, these people in the captivity have been waiting for years and years without the word of the Lord. But that's not what happens. He doesn't just go and declare his message right away. Instead, he goes and he sits. And for Americans, that can be really challenging to do. We like to be very productive with our time. 
And just the idea of sitting can sometimes be challenging to us. But he sits for seven days. Think about that. It means he's willing to spend some time with them. He's willing to be overwhelmed. Willing to be so immersed in their culture, their customs. And you might think that that's only for us in Thailand. But if you think that, then you're probably overlooking some divine appointments that God has for you right here in Fresno. Because there are people here whose family cultures are different from yours. And the only way you're ever going to reach them is if you're going to immerse yourself in their culture. If you're willing to be a little bit overwhelmed at times. A little bit uncomfortable at times. Earlier this morning... One of my Thai friends was kind of on a rant on Facebook about some American tourists and, and the way that they just didn't understand uh, important things about shoes to Thai people. It's something that matters a lot in Thai culture, etiquette about shoes. So that phrase, I sat where they sat, for me, if, that means that if I'm going to go and I'm going to visit my friend, then the first thing I'm going to do when I get to his house is I take off my shoes. Because if I don't, then... He's not going to hear a word that I have to say. If I walk into his house with my shoes on, I've offended him so deeply, our relationship would take months or years to recover. So I have to understand a little bit about where he's coming from. And then not only that, but in many Thai homes, when I go and when I sit, then uh, I'm going to have to sit the way that they sit. And I'll just be honest, I'm six foot two, and before I moved to Thailand, I never sat Indian style. It was just not part of, not part of my norm, not part of the repertoire. Uh, we sit in comfortable furniture here. But if I'm going to sit where they sit, if I'm going to get into their homes, if I'm going to get into their lives, I have to be able to sit where they sit. And then I'm going to have uh, a two-year-old sitting on one knee until that leg falls asleep. And um, you just, you understand it's a picture, and what I'm challenging you to do is this, in your own place, find someone who's not like you, and go be willing to sit where they sit for a while. Take of your time, maybe, maybe seven days. Ezekiel, an important prophet, went and he wasted, or did he, seven days to sit where they sit. And then in verse 16, do you see what it says? After he sat where they sat, after he was overwhelmed, after he was with them for seven days, in verse 16, the word of the Lord came unto me. You understand, people may not be receptive even to the truth until you've taken time to sit where they sit. You guys know the name Wilt Chamberlain, one of the greatest basketball players ever. There's a strange parallel between Wilt Chamberlain and a lady named Radha, who is a local nurse uh, where we live. Radha, she's a nurse at our local hospital there in Lampoon. She's well-dressed, well-educated, well-spoken. She's in her maybe late 40s. After coming to our Easter service, she took a copy of John and Roman's home, and she read it within a week. Then she brought it back to me. 
And what she said indelibly imprinted itself on my mind. I translate it pretty directly here. It says, I know this is the truth. She said to me that day, I know this is the truth, but I can't follow Jesus. At least not yet, not when my parents are alive. I'm the firstborn in my family. Now, first, there were several ideas. As she's saying this to me, it, it, it was taking some time to process this information. What does the firstborn in your family have to do with it? I just, there's a lot that's beyond my understanding. I have to immerse myself in what matters to her in her relationship with her parents. Wilt Chamberlain, phenomenal basketball player, unparalleled in his day. But, you know, he had a, a major weakness. As a free-throw shooter, his, his percentage over the course of his entire career in the NBA was 51% as a free-throw shooter. He, he had a season that was so bad, it was 38%. But here we have a picture of Wilt Chamberlain. And in one game, he still, of course, holds this record. In one game, Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points. And an interesting thing about how that happened is he ran into this guy named Rick Barry, who to this day is the only player in the history of the NBA who consistently shot his free throws underhanded. See, the way that Wilt Chamberlain actually scored 100 points in one game is he made 28 out of 32 free throws. That's almost 90%. He never came close to that before. And even after that, because he, sh he shot, you know what we call it? We call it granny style, right? We have this kind of derogative term, but it's actually been scientifically proven that basically any basketball player would improve their free throw percentage by shooting underhanded. But there's this concept here that we have too high a threshold. That means we are more concerned about what we think someone else will think about us. I'm already confused in this sentence. What we think someone else will think about us. Why does it matter so much? If the basketball is going to go into the hoop at the rate of 90% instead of 50%, but to Wilt Chamberlain, it mattered more that people would make fun of him for shooting granny shots. For Radha, she knows the truth. She knows that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. But there are certain factors in her life that matter more than the truth. And here's the thing. In your life, in your circle, there are people who may know some of the truth, but that truth is not going to matter. It's not going to affect their lives until you make that truth applicable to them by showing them, by allowing them to experience the love of Christ in a real, intangible way. And that's going to take time. That's going to take sitting where they sit. From the perspective of the church, making disciples is the way that the church can grow deeper and stronger. You know, sometimes I'm afraid we color an imaginary line between people who take a salary from the church and those who take a salary from some, some secular business. Don't we all share the same calling as disciple-making disciples? Why would you, 
if you work in the secular world? Why would you abandon the most fruitful work a Christian can possibly engage in to a select few people? Especially when those people probably have a more limited, uh, they, they have this handicap of being in contact with fewer lost people through the regular just contact of daily living. You in your workplace run into all kinds of lost people. You in your neighborhood, in your school. God has given you a network of people and God can give you divine appointments with those people. But you have to be willing to take some time to sit where they sit. And I'm not just maybe, sometimes we need to think about more than just going out to lunch. We need to think about engaging in their life in a deep and meaningful way. Making disciples is a way to grow a church deeper and stronger. How does David in the Bible, the king, get to the point where at the end of Second Chronicles, he has a list of 30 mighty men. These are like incredible super soldiers. See, if you, if you look at the history of David's life, after he had been called, after he had been anointed to be the king of Israel, he went through this very low, very discouraging time where all those distressed, indebted, discouraged, the down and outers come to him at the cave of, uh, of Adullam, and he becomes kind of the captain of this little band. And then he leads these men through a place called Ziklag, which is just a tiny city that doesn't matter anything, and they almost stone him at Ziklag. And then he becomes the king in Hebron, which in, in the history of Israel, it's not, it's not some kind of major kingdom. It's just he's more like a mayor. He's been anointed to be the king. But all along, you know what the Lord is using him to do? The Lord is using him to mentor. The Lord is using him to bring along these other men from the point of distressed and indebted to the point where at the end of his life, not only is he an incredible king, but there are 30 super soldiers, 30 incredible mighty men. How does Christ succeed in changing the world with a handful of 11 men? It's the same focus on making disciples. I would say, too, that making disciples is a really messy process. Think about the people that Christ reached out to. You have Nicodemus, who came to see him at night, but in most cases, Christ was going to see people who society uh, maybe looked down on, especially the religious society. Making disciples can be kind of a messy process. But we have this plan from the Holy Spirit. We have this calling from the Holy Spirit. We see these two key words in, in the passage in Matthew 28 that we read just a moment ago. These words are therefore and behold, or therefore and lo. These statements connect the command to make disciples to our supernaturally gifted ability to accomplish that command. With you. Lo, I am with you always. This is the challenge, as I close, that I want you to undertake today in, in three very simple steps. Number one, I want you to pray that God would give you an appointment with someone. It might not be someone that you would imagine 
yourself. But I want you to pray that God would give you an appointment with someone, or maybe more than one someone. Number two, I want you to have the courage to follow through on that prompting of the Holy Spirit, to engage in their lives, to spend real genuine time with them. And then three, I want you to take the time to share the love of Christ with them over months, over years even. This is the meaningful work by which we as disciples, as agents of the kingdom of heaven, can engage and change the world around us. Engage in the lives of unbelievers. We don't always lead in with the gospel. We don't always start with this incredible message. Sometimes we have to sit where they sit for a little while. I'll summarize this way. You have an impossible calling, one that you could never accomplish as a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you are a disciple, you have this impossible calling. However, the Holy Spirit wants to use you, following the example of Paul and so many others who have done an incredible job in the scriptures and in modern day of making disciples. And he will lead you, the Holy Spirit will lead you and help you to step out in faith and fulfill this great commission that Jesus gave to us. If you allow your fear to overcome your faith, you'll, you'll never engage with others. You'll never lead others into a meaningful discipleship with Christ because your fear will keep you in your comfort zone. But if you step out in faith, if you follow the Holy Spirit, God will use you, your life, to bring deliverance and redemption to people who are waiting for salvation. And along the way, you'll find that something has happened in you too. As you are making disciples, Jesus is making a disciple of you. It's going to take faith. It's going to take time. It's going to take commitment. But the Holy Spirit is calling you to be a disciple who makes disciples. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.